0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?
3: Talking about, similarly, November as an incredible year, head of macro strategy at Academy Security is an incredible year that may or may not be repeatable in the coming year, that is December. How much do you lean against some of the moves that we saw last week, Pete?
4: So one, I'm starting to lean against Treasuries a little bit. I think 420 is a little bit too low given the data. I don't like the fact that either 10-year real yields are right around 2% or five-year, five-year break-evens are back to right around 2%. And if last month's fed meeting was really about the market had done the work for the fed this month's meeting is going to be about well the market undid all that work so i think rates have got ahead of themselves on the equity side of things i think we've seen for the last couple weeks this move where the russell 2000 disruptive stocks have outperformed some of the broad indices and i think that actually continues into year end peter you're so good at use of cash and i want to go to the
2: use of cash right now of one mr and mrs zuckerberg Uh, bloomberg reporting on the sale of the zuckerbergs of a very large amount of facebook shares it's a little bit smaller than what uh peter sheer has in uh meta if you will but they are out right now with uh uh with some uh news on that and and peter i think this does get the use of cash it gets to dividend increase it gets to share buyback and maybe executives unloading their stock after in this case 172 percent surge peter help me here with where we are in use of cash if we see people like the zuckerbergs
4: selling shares listen i think we've had this phenomenal run in the magnificent seven the leadership has been very narrow all year people have been talking about that and since november 9th and we brought up i think last week nvidia earnings were very telling as well nvidia earnings were probably fine stock went down but markets rallied and I'm really looking the disruptive stocks are doing well. You see Spotify up there today um, for various reasons. I think you're going to see regional banks continue to do well, commercial real estate, Russell 2000, all the small caps, all the things that people have left behind. As people are trying to figure out <clears throat> where do I right. put my cash right now, especially if you missed 5% on the 10-year, those kind of look interesting, I think, have some momentum coming at a year end.
2: I, I'm actually fascinated, Peter. Let's meld the two together. I mean, are we going to see bond issuance, to support equity ownership. I mean, whether it's the miracle of Zuckerberg's and Facebook up, Meta up is, is well. I mean, I think it's almost a jumble into next year.
4: Yeah, I think we are gonna see more bond issuance. If you, you know, we've been certainly talking to some of our corporate issuers recommending that they get out ahead of this, right? We are at 10% or sorry, 5% on 10 years. We're at 4.2%. You can save some money there. Credit spreads have actually done very well. We're at the lowest spreads all year. So issue some bonds, support your equity Um, Also, I think we could see some M&A activity finally start picking up. It's been, you know, looked at the end of the summer, you might get a bit of that, but now you've had the stability reasonably long enough. I think you get some interesting transactions done coming into the new year.
2: A phrase from 12 months ago, and Lisa, I give you, you coined this, it's almost a toxic brew of risk on is where we are. Which is the reason why.
3: A lot of people might say uh, it might have gone too fast, but it's hard to lean against. Peter, just to to Tom's point, uh, the news is that Mark Zuckerberg is selling Meta stock for the first time in two years. And this comes after the incredible run up and you're seeing the shares in pre-market trading down about one and a half percent on Meta. It raises this larger question of what do you lean against? You said you think Treasury rates have gone too far. A lot of people, I think, uh, are starting to pick that up, which is maybe why you're seeing a bit of a retracement today. On the equity side, are you hearing anyone lean against some of the tech names that have gone incredibly far so far this year, and frankly, the year that was November?
4: I'm not sure if many people are actually leaning against them. I think it's still a fairly crowded trade to be long those, but I would be very comfortable being short QQQ, so the NASDAQ 100 versus long IWM, the Russell 2000. I think trades like that are actually well positioned for the next few weeks. And at some point, I do think. We probably want to turn bearish on this market. Maybe we get to 46.50 on the S&P. Maybe the S, uh, Nat, Russell 2000 can run another 5%. But if the economic data starts coming in as weak as probably needs to be to support for 20, 10 years, then I think equities are going to roll over a little bit. But that's probably not this week, next week. That's probably closer to the end of year, early January.
3: So how would Russell 2000 outperform NASDAQ in that scenario, right? Because at this point, if you start thinking about weaker economic growth that supports the bond call. Why then would some of the most levered to the economy companies, the smaller companies, do the best?
4: Because I think people have been avoiding those stocks all year long and crowded into the other stocks. So it's all going to be about what's crowded, right? And if you start getting nervous about the economy, people are going to turn around and say, oh, we've got to cut our risk. Well, guess what? If you don't own a lot of Russell 2000, you can't sell the Russell 2000. So you're going to wind <laughs> up selling what you have. And I think that's just the nature right. of this market right now. That's the crowded trade. That's where people piled into. So if we get nervous about the economy, that's actually going to sell off harder because that's where people are overweight. Peter, where's 60,
2: 40, 12 months from now?
4: No, probably where it's always been. It's it's kind of has this attraction. That's one of the things that kind of just keeps on going, um, along with covered call writing. People like those strategies. I, I think you want to be probably... M- underweight treasuries right now on that 60-40. You want to be more towards the front end, because I think the next move should be slightly higher in yields back to 440, maybe on 10-year. But you still want to play around that. You want these balanced portfolios, and you want to also see what can we do outside. I actually, for the first time in multiple years, for the last two weeks, and it hasn't been working yet, I like Chinese stocks more on a trade. I think long-term, I don't want to invest in China, but for a trade, they're fair.
2: Peter, thank you so much for the comments, particularly there on Meta is a Zuckerberg's unload um, stock as well. We're in good company right now on FX. George Cerevelos is global head of FX research at Deutsche Bank. George, throughout your note, there's this speed towards very weak inflation in abrupt disinflation. How do we play that in foreign exchange?
5: So I think, uh, Tom, next year, it's all going to be about these policy gaps, which central bank is gonna cut first uh, and which one is gonna lag, or is it all gonna be symmetric? Uh, and the way I think we are being set up for next year is that the ECB is most likely to go first. Uh, if we look at the most recent inflation data, I would argue the ECB uh, should actually be cutting next week. Um, inflation, core inflation over the last three months is running below one percent. Um, so we're not that far away from having to start thinking about deflation risks uh, when we're discussing Europe. Uh, and of course, the economy is also at best in stagnation. Uh, So, I would argue the market is right to price more ECB easing, uh, but perhaps versus uh, the U.S. is getting quite ahead of itself.
6: George, you've got some aggressive calls on both central banks now then. You've got a call on the Federal Reserve, you and the team. I think 170 basis points, 175 basis points of cuts starting in June next year. Now, George, there's a range of forecasts, as you know, for next year, but that's certainly not consensus. Can you explain to us all why you think we start in June, but go a whole lot deeper than a lot of people think?
5: Well, I think, John, that goes back to the recession versus hard, uh, versus soft landing debate. And now, if you look at what the market's pricing at the moment, uh, we have Fed funds going to around reasonable estimates of neutral slightly above 3%. So, the market is perfectly priced for a soft landing, so to speak. So, I think if we're looking at next year, um, the strongest view I would probably have is the, this bond equity correlation, which has been very positive. So, you've had higher bond prices and higher equities at the same time, uh, that's very unlikely to last uh, because you're either into a soft landing and therefore you can't price lower Fed funds anymore, risk can continue going well. But if you do go into recession, then you'll, you will—you can most certainly price more cuts, but it's, it's not going to be possible for equities to, to still value. So, uh, the last three, four months have been great from an asset perspective because you've had this Uh, bonds and equities going up at the same time, I think that's going to be very difficult to repeat itself uh, for next year.
3: That's on the U.S. side. I want to just get you to elaborate a little bit when you're talking about your belief that the ECB should cut next week, that you think that the Eurozone is facing deflation uh, and that that risk is rising. What do you think will be the follow on response if the ECB goes ahead and does that? Do you think that they could then engineer a soft landing or do you think that they could just avoid the depths of a pretty significant downturn that you think hasn't been fully recognized?
5: So I think it's important to distinguish between growth and inflation. And in fact, if I look at Europe, I would say it's the perfect definition of a soft landing. Because what you have is growth has slowed down, and at the moment it's around zero. So we're debating maybe we get one or two quarters of negative GDP. But as long as the ECB cuts, and uh, I need to be careful in what I say, Uh, I think they should be cutting next week. I don't think they will. I think it's more likely precisely because they were late on the way in, so to speak, they'll be late on the way out. But as long as the ECB, say, cuts by March, April, I think actually Europe's going to be in a relatively okay place where the economy soft lands and inflation um, comes back down to 2 percent or potentially below. Uh, But that's actually a pretty good outcome. Uh, It's also quite a negative outcome for the exchange rate. But given how quickly inflation is coming down, uh, probably a weaker euro is not a bad thing for Europe at the moment.
2: George, over the weekend was a lot of zeitgeist, hope and prayer of a strong yen off of some form of policy change in Japan, a way for people to make big, big, big figures fast. Do you buy it? So there's two ways to get a strong yen. Uh, One is that the Bank of
5: Japan finally starts a proper hiking cycle. And what I mean by that is they say they're gonna start hiking every meeting. Uh, That looks pretty unlikely, especially as the rest of the world is moving into an easing cycle. So I'd uh, probably say that's the least likely outcome. But if you are in an environment where the other central banks are starting to cut because inflation uh, has come down, uh, then you can get yen strength, because it will be the outlier, uh, so to speak, on the way out, as it was uh, on the way in. So I'd be much more inclined to think about yen strength from the global perspective rather than the domestic Japanese perspective.
6: Dear Christine, George thinks you will cut next week. What do you think, George? No, don't worry. It's not going be the headline.
0: George Saravella, at Deutsche Bank. George, thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie?
2: Now we are going to look at the climate affairs of Dubai, and this with the World Bank in transition from David Malpass over to Mr. Rangan. What's so important here is his corporate work with Nestle, and on Mastercard and then General Electric. With a conversation with the president of the World Bank, our Jen Zabajaja in Dubai, Jen.
7: Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Uh, Ajay, uh, Tom was just giving you a really great intro there uh, about how your previous career, uh, now you're at the World Bank. And let's just talk, in the first few months of your role, you've made climate finance a priority. I mean, can you talk to us about where you've seen progress and whether you think this is really a turning point for this discussion?
8: You know, I think it's very important because the reality is that We've had the hottest year on record. We're aiming for another hot year. Clearly, this has to change. And you can't make climate and fight the climate issue without money coming to work on it. So it's one of the most important things. When I travelled around the world, I picked up the impression that dealing with poverty cannot be by itself. You have to deal with climate, pandemics, fragility. These are all intertwined crises. That's why we changed our mission to include livable planet in addition to eradicating poverty. So this is what we're on. And what I'm trying to do here to show you the progress is to make a commitment that we will get to 45% of our financing annually mm-hmm. will go to climate by 2025, mm-hmm. two years from now. Not. 10 years from today. Right. That's $40 billion a year working on climate finance.
7: How do you do that? How do you adjust your balance sheet to ensure that?
8: Yeah, well, the good news is we've got to be also raising capital along the way, thanks to this whole capital adequacy framework that the G20 got us going with, and we're also doing things like looking at whether we can securitize parts of our balance sheet, existing balance sheet, free up some capital, and then partnerships. So you don't really do all that financing yourself. You can also get partnerships going. You know, I have great partners with the other multilateral banks. AIIB, EIB, EBRD, these are all people who work with us. So there's multiple ways to go at this. But at the end of the day, the much bigger issue here is, even if I do all that, even if the other multilateral banks do what they can, even if governments do all they can, you do need the private sector. You're going to need their ingenuity and technology and numbers.
7: Right, and that's what you've been spending the past few days uh, talking a lot with the private sector. This is your first cough. Yes. Uh, can you talk to us about, I mean, give us a sense of what it's like in the room, where there's consensus and where there's still gaps within the private sector and the
8: collaboration between that's the a two. great question. So the, so the private sector issue is the private sector now knows that solar and wind power per unit is cheaper than fossil fuel. That's proven with scale and technology. They know that it takes longer sometimes as a gestation period and they know they may have some higher capex at front because they have got to build grids and you can't just build the installed capacity, right? So they understand that. So why is it then that they aren't burning down the doors of countries to go do this? For two or three reasons. One is, does the country have the capacity to absorb this kind of projects coming in? Can they connect the grids up? Can they do all that? But second, and much more critical, is the two kinds of risks that private sector investors don't like, which they don't understand. Mm -hmm. They don't understand political risk, and they don't understand foreign exchange risk in the emerging markets. Now, political risk, we can help with. We have this, in, this institution called MiGA, our interim or sort of our guarantee agency. We've now got approval to use that for every multilateral development bank. Mm-hmm. They can use our back office to issue guarantees. This does political risk guarantees and then lays them off in the reinsurance market. Mm-hmm. We need to scale that. It's the FX risk Yeah. that's the much harder. One. Well,
7: how do you get around that? I mean, because that's not going away in a lot of emerging No,
8: markets. so in fact, you know, people keep talking about local currency markets as the way to do it. The reality is developing a local currency market of the right depth and width to be able to do this well can take five, ten years. You don't really have 5 or 10 years. Right. So I think we have to find instruments like, could we do some local currency bond issuance that we subsidize the difference in cost through our balance sheet or our concessional financing? Can we do things with others where there's an institution called TCX, which is created to help take some of the FX risk in these markets. Can we scale them up? And so on and so forth. Can we do creative swaps where using our rating, we get at a lower price than what the country would hard. FX risk is the hardest one.
7: Yeah. I mean, so then, Ajay, when we talk about the progress then at the end of COP28, your first COP, I mean, what does that look like for you? What is it that you're shooting for? Because there have been a number of initiatives and pledges. Of course, the World Bank has been a part of some of those. I mean, what then does progress look like in the next few days?
8: So I've got five very clear things I'm measuring on what we are doing. And the first one was getting that 45 percent of financing that we talked about. Mm In that, 50% for mitigation, 50% for adaptation. Mm -hmm. So we don't only do emission avoidance, we also care about adapting and resilient infrastructure in the global south. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. The second big one is methane. Methane is 80 times more toxic than carbon dioxide, but it only gets 2% of climate financing. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing is we've got actual projects on the ground on rice paddy cultivation, livestock management, and waste management. We're scaling those and saying we're going to get to 15 countries in 18 months, and over the course of these projects, take out 10 million tons of methane from the system. Hmm. Third one is Africa. 600 million people in Africa don't have access to electricity. Right. We've got a project approved by our board, 5 billion of financing from IDA, our lowest-priced guarantee kind of the cheapest fund location 10 billion through governments and private sector we're going to connect 100 million people in seven years to power solar power including the grids that need to be existing to make this happen at scale a fourth one is voluntary carbon markets So I think the only way you transfer resources at scale from the developed world to the developing world for what the developing world deserves to be paid for, which is forests and natural resources, is voluntary carbon markets. But
7: there's a lot of criticism about carbon markets.
8: Yes, there is, because people felt that the credits that were coming weren't genuine credits. So you just picked on exactly the topic that's really important. Verifiable, genuine credits of integrity are what determine whether these markets will work. So what I'm doing is I'm not doing a carbon market where I'm not involved. I'm doing carbon markets with projects. Where the World Bank is doing a forestry project in a country. Right. So we're starting with four, going to 15 by the end of next year. We think these countries will generate 24 million credits next year itself, and 125 over five or six years. I'm certifying the environmental integrity through a jurisdictional audit. And I'm also certifying the social integrity that most of the money they earn will go to the communities and the indigenous people in that area. I think if you do things like that, and you do them with consistency, you will create the right kind of carbon markets for tomorrow. Today, you're only getting five bucks a credit.
7: Yes, but still a lot to go. Uh, But glad to have you here, Bloomberg. uh, Excuse me, Ajay Banga with the World Bank. Uh, Ajay, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you. Thanks very much, John. Back to you. Hey Jen, thank you. We got to go. Jennifer Zabazanjic there, and Ajay Banga, the World Bank president.
2: David Turk joins us now with Secretary Granholm, as is U- U.S. Deputy Energy Secretary. David, thank you so much for joining us, and you do so with your service to the nation of six, seven, and eight jobs in climate. The immovable fact is we're trying to do something about coal. My latest reading is China's really not doing something about coal. What is the department's timeline in America
9: to diminish coal usage? Well, first of all, Tom and Lisa, thanks for the time, and I really appreciate you being being with you today. Um, So we've got to look across the board. It's not just coal. It's natural gas. It's oil. We've got to look at all the sources of emissions, and we've got to have a plan to build all the new uh, clean energy. Uh, And this is what we've got in the U.S. We've got historic levels of funding through the pieces of legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, we're building out our clean energy future like never before in our country. It's quite staggering what we're, uh, what we're doing.
2: I, I go with that, and of course in the FT this morning, a huge difference between a complete, com- complete climate commitment in Europe to the fractured battle you fight every day in the United States. But to look at coal as one example, particularly with the Chinese just ignoring the debate on coal from everything I read, what is the administration's path to shut down or diminish coal usage across America.
9: So we've seen dramatic declines in coal uh, in our country and uh, that's projected to continue going forward. It's because we have cheaper, better alternatives, uh, solar and wind. Um, The solar penetration we've got in our country, the wind, uh, other clean energy technologies, uh, they're just simply cheaper and better. And so the market is reacting uh, to those incentives.
3: David, I'm looking right now at WTI uh, crude traded on the NYMEX at $73.46. Is this a good time to start refilling the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve?
9: So we have been, um, and we're going to be opportunistic, and we're going to take every advantage when the price is at the right level to make a good deal for taxpayers. Uh, We're going to refill. So uh, we are refilling as much as we can. We've been doing that for the last several months, and uh, at this price level, we'll keep uh, keep doing it. (coughs)
3: It has been about a three million barrel a month purchase that the energy department has been making. Do you plan to accelerate that though, as prices do continue to fall?
9: So that is the physical limit of how much we can buy back. Uh, we've got some lifetime extensions in some of our caverns. We actually have four separate uh, facilities, four separate sites for our strategic petroleum reserve. So we will be doing at least three million barrels. Uh, and we hope we can bring more capacity online at these price levels to buy as much as we can to refill to make sure we've got that available uh, when we need it in the future. So we'll buy as much back as we uh, we possibly can, but there are some physical constraints uh, given the way the caverns are set up.
3: We've been talking a lot about some of the consolidation in the shale patch uh, with a number of companies coming to the fore, the latest coming this morning. Is this a good thing from the energy department standpoint or a bad thing?
9: So as you know, a lot of decisions that are made in the energy sector, certainly in our country or private sector, uh, decisions along uh, along those lines and we're certainly <coughs> seeing that happen uh, as well. I think one good thing we've certainly seen is a focus from a lot of companies including here at the climate conference on reducing methane emissions. Uh, this is something we've been after for quite some time. Our EPA colleagues uh, recently announced some big news here in terms of the new regulatory uh, structure to really uh, do what's the biggest no-brainer, I think, in the history yeah. of no-brainers on climate, is reduce methane emissions in the oil and gas sectors. So we're really stepping up on that, and we're seeing right. some companies uh, step up on that beyond what they're required to do in the U.S.
2: I'll take your point on that. There's some real traction on that. You know, I, I want to go back here. You were an advisor fresh out of Virginia to Senators Biden, Senator Conrad. You've had 18 jobs in energy. You've arguably, uh, David Turk, Republicans and Democrats have more experience than anybody breathing today. How did we get to being an OPEC-sized oil nation? All of a sudden, we're like as big as a rock, or, you know, I'll let you decide what it is. How did we get to this hydrocarbon success that America is today?
9: Well, first of all, Tom, thanks for the compliment. I'll make sure my mom uh, sees this and hears such a nice, uh, nice compliment. Uh, I think the short answer is we are a private sector Market And unless you have federal laws, federal restrictions, the private sector will do what the private sector will do. And they found a lot of uh, profit and a lot of opportunity, including and especially in shale in our country.
2: What do you say to the critics of the Biden administration that it is not private sector centric?
9: So look at the numbers, look at where the production levels are at. Uh, We also need to, of course, focus on the emissions coming from all of that oil and gas, not only that produced in the U.S., but around the world. And one disappointment i have to say here at the climate conference is while we've made some progress on methane emissions that's a big deal Uh, i don't think there's as much focus as there needs to be on oil and gas scope three emissions that is those emissions uh, uh, produced uh, when uh, that oil that gasoline uh, goes into the uh, atmosphere scope three emissions are actually 10 times the amount of scope one and scope two for many oil and gas companies. So we need a lot more focus on scope three emissions. We need a real credible plan for dealing with those emissions.
3: David, does it make it kind of awkward for the U.S. to have a leadership position in reducing emissions at COP28, given the fact that U.S. production has increased to a record pace, even as it's cut in places like Saudi Arabia and Qatar?
9: So I feel incredibly proud to be part of this historic Biden administration when it comes to climate change. In fact, we are actually seeing our emissions decrease in the U.S. 3% in 2023, despite GDP growth uh, healthier uh, than just about every other country in the world. And what you've seen is with the historic pieces of legislation, all we're doing in this administration, we're expected already just in these few short years of policy to actually double our emission reductions by 2030, uh, uh, 40% plus reductions. Um, uh, just from the actions from this administration. That's an impressive mm-hmm. uh, record, and we need to do more. All countries around the world need to do more, given, uh, given the, the, the climate challenges that we face and we're already seeing in our world today.
2: David Turk, thank you so much. He's a deputy U.S. Energy Secretary, of course, from Dubai.
0: Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. By providing financial professionals with straightforward, client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com slash techsf.
2: Looking at United, Delta, and American Airlines is Helene Becker, senior research analyst T.D. Cowan. Why did this happen? Is this two mini dinosaurs mating? What's the why here versus United. Delta, in American.
10: Hi, Tom. Um, So I think the why is twofold. First of all, this is a continuation of the consolidation we've seen in the past for the industry, but also during the pandemic, we didn't have the consolidation we probably should have had. We had the government stepping in to save the airline industry, and unfortunately, they, they couldn't save everybody, so now you're getting that washout. And um, I think for Alaska and Hawaiians specifically, it really will help them cross the bridge to the other side of the river, so to speak, um, where, where they'll be able to survive right. as, as a consumer brand. Away from the financial part, Helene
2: Becker, wh- where is the... Where is the the flight that really is going to add value here? Is it LAX to Hawaii? Something John's taken a million times. What, what's the flight where you thought, wow, this is where the synergy can happen?
10: Yeah, I think it's 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 more um, Hawaii to the mainland for for people who come. First of all, Hawaii, as you know, is very remote. I think it's the most one of the most remote places on Earth and one of the hardest to get to. Um, and so, for people who live in the islands, um, they do tend to go either inter-island or to the west coast. They don't really reach too much into the mainland, and if they want to, it's usually a one—it's—it's it's usually more than a one-stop flight. Um, for Alaska, it—it it gives them the opportunity to to be bigger. I think the combined airline will have over three hundred aircraft. Um, Revenue will be about $13, $14 billion. So it's not like they're close, right? Your your comment before about American Delta United, those are $50 billion revenue companies. These these are small. And um, they serve a purpose. Uh, people fly them, right? They fly 80, 85% low factors. They both deliver a great product. Um, you're not really changing a whole lot, unlike with JetBlue and Spirit, where you're changing more. Um, not to say that merger shouldn't occur, but we're looking at airlines, To your again, to your point before, Hawaiians have about 180% pre-market, um, and that's primarily because under $5, the market's telling you these companies can't survive, and we have a lot of airlines in that under $5 trading range right now. Um, and so we're seeing that consolidation that should have probably already occurred.
6: TK, direct Newark, Hawaii, United.
2: No way, yeah. you can fly
6: direct, direct from can Newark fly. to Amazing, Honolulu? Amazing, isn't it? You can fly direct from Newark on United, there you go. I did not know that. Yes, you did. I did Give not me know a break. That. Let's get into it, Helene, not that, the important <laughs> stuff. JetBlue and Spirit held up. The alliance between JetBlue and American Airlines, crushed. What will they allow? What won't they allow? We can see this morning that Alaska are making a very clear statement that they don't think this is anti-competitive. They're complementary businesses. The overlap is only 12 routes, 3% of their total seats. Can you frame for us what is allowed and what isn't?
10: Yeah, I I think this Justice Department doesn't like anything big. And it's not like these guys are going to be big. JetBlue and Spirit isn't big right? They go to be the fifth largest, JetBlue Spirit goes to be the fifth largest. Alaska, Hawaiian is going to be right in there, five, six, something like that. It's not like we're going to take over the fourth largest spot. Um, JetBlue and Spirit are 9% on a combined basis. This is even smaller. So I suspect that if they look at this um, on a on a, um, I don't know the right word, <laughs> on a on a Just just the way they should, on a not with a jaded eye, where they're just looking at it, does this deal make sense? They should come away well, with, yes, this transaction does make sense. Well, Helene, just to put a bow on that,
3: if they approve this transaction, do they have to approve Spirit and JetBlue?
10: Well, Spirit, JetBlue should have, is is where it belongs, right? They're in court. Closing, closing arguments start tomorrow, um, should take to the end of the week, I would think if even that long. And then the judge renders his decision. So, um, I mean, the one word answer, Lisa, is yes, they should just move on and go fight other battles.
3: How much is this going to be some sort of consolidation of aircraft, consolidation of workers, consolidation of operations? And how much is it going to be just the actual geography of these places? People go to Hawaii in the wintertime and people go to Alaska in the summertime and they can offset each other.
10: Right, exactly. Um, so, so two things there to think about. They're both kind of bucketless trips, right? From the mainland, especially the East Coast, it's 15 hours nonstop on the United uh, flight out of Newark. Hawaiian flies out of JFK. Um, they used to fly out of Boston. That flight, I think, came back uh, post pandemic. So, they do fly here on a nonstop basis, but those are 15 hour flights. So, those are bucketless trips if you're coming from the East Coast. Um, it, In in terms of operations, they said last night that they're going to operate the two separately, one operating certificate, but two separate brands, sort of the way hotel chains do it, right? You have 14 or 15 brands under one major holding company. Um, Same thing here. They're going to just operate Hawaiian separately and Alaska separately because both companies really do have great brands and they're well-loved by the people who fly them a lot.
6: Elaine, just to wrap things up, to get your top pick, the airlines have bounced recently, but are still some twenty-seven percent from the altitude we hit back in the summer. Do you like that, Bram? That was oh, it's for you. That was really <laughs> good. I liked I was it. Proud of that. That was
3: good. It was good. Uh,
6: Elaine, what is your top pick at the moment? We had the busiest day on record for U.S. airports only a couple of Sundays ago, and these stocks over the last few months, yes, more recently, have rallied, but it's been difficult since the July peak.
10: Yeah, people have been worried about a consumer recession, et cetera. Um, So our best idea for 2023 was United, and our best idea for 2024
6: is Delta. Why the change, Elaine? Mm
10: -hmm. Um, So the change primarily came for two reasons. One, United's been our best idea for the past two years, and it's mostly worked. Um, But they're embarking on a $60 billion 10-year CapEx program, and we don't think Delta's is gonna be quite as aggressive. We think Delta's will be smaller than that. Um, at some point, they'll have to replace the 717s. They'll probably do that with A220s, but it's a much smaller CapEx program. Delta has a similar footprint to United. They're just a little bit bigger domestically than United. United's 50-50 domestic international, while Delta's more like 60-40. Um, so we just pivoted a little bit to to uh, to Delta.
6: Uh, the balance sheet, the order book. Those are a couple of the reasons why. appreciate the update, Elaine. Elaine Becker of TD
2: Cowan.
10: Subscribe
2: to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane, and this is Bloomberg.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like